In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. It was good to see you guys. I figured no one would come because of the rain, so I'm glad, that, uh, glad to see you. Uh, so God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Exodus. Um, last time we uh, studied chapter 7 and then half of chapter 8. So we're, gonna, um, st we're just going to read the beginning part of chapter 8 um, uh, at the beginning of the second plague, which is the frogs. Uh, and then we will go up to chapter to verse 11, which is where we stopped last time, and then we can continue um, from there. Twelve. Twelve is the next. Uh, okay, so we're not reading the beginning. Okay, so we're just going to go straight into the first twelve. Okay, so anyway, the, 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 the beginning of the chapter was focusing on um, the second plague, uh, which was the plague of the frogs. Okay, so we'll continue from where we left off. So it says, Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs, which he had brought ag uh, against Pharaoh, so the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. So um, they, they, they agreed that there's going to be a certain time where Moses is going to pray and intercede for the frogs to be removed. Um, and this was done uh, at the request of Pharaoh. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. This pattern is something that we experience all the time. We ask God in our moments of trouble and trial and hardship. We ask God for help, for salvation, for protection, to be with us, to find a solution, all this. And in those moments, maybe we are sincere in wanting to recommit ourselves to God, into wanting to recommit ourselves to spiritual life, and wanting to recommit to going to church, and want to recommit all these things and in those moments because we feel vulnerable and we feel tired and we feel anxious um, we turn to God and then whenever relief comes whenever something is resolved whenever things you know are, are corrected um, very gradually we kind of it's easy to sink back into the same things that we did before can you you remember something we studied in one of the previous Bible studies of this pattern that happened very often in the in the nation of Israel. Do you remember what? In the book of Judges, what would happen? Guide them to would uh, guide them to follow the commandments of God, and they would follow God, and then that judge would die, and then they'd go straight back to everything that they were doing, and then they would get uh, oppressed by like the Philistines. And then they start crying out to God again. God would hear them, send them another judge, repeat. Very good, right? And this was a pattern that happened again and again and again. And if you read the book of Judges, it's kind of like re reading the same pattern over and over. And so here the same thing also with Pharaoh. The moment that he got what he wanted, okay, he, uh, he, 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 he didn't commit, he didn't do what he said he was going to do, okay? So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it might become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. This is the third plague now. And they did, and they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not, 
So there were lice on man and beast. So we see something begins to happen um, with the magicians, right? The very first time, what happened with the magicians? They were they did what? The serpents, right? So Moses showed that his rod could be turned to a serpent. All the magicians did the same, okay? And then uh, even afterward, uh, we read that the magicians, they were able to turn some of the water into blood, and the magicians were able to bring some frogs, okay? Now we see here that the magicians tried to bring forth the lice, but they could not, okay? So it's like God is revealing through time like the, the falseness of these magicians. They really didn't have any power, right? God is greater than them. The power of God is greater than them. And we're going to see coming up in a little while what m further is going to happen to these magicians. Yes. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't here last week. So uh, these plagues, did they affect the people of Israel as well? Or was no. Okay, only the, the plagues Egyptians. only affected um, the, the Egyptians. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So now look at this declaration from the magicians. Now the magicians, they tried to do this and they could not. It says what? Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. Right? The magicians themselves said what? This power, this act that's happening, this is, this is not even our own, what our own magic is or what our own gods can do. or Like this is something beyond us. You know, all throughout, Pharaoh was taking comfort in the fact that his magicians could do whatever it is that Moses did. And as long as his magicians could do whatever it is that Moses did, he felt comfortable because he felt like, okay, there's nothing special about them. Yeah, you have magical powers, we have magical powers, and, you know, I'm not going to heed you because your God is not any greater than any other God, right? Because your, the power of your God is just like the power of my gods. But here, now the magicians themselves are saying, no, this power is greater than our power, okay? The magician said, this is the finger of God. Like, this is beyond us, okay? And it's like the magicians themselves began to believe, like, what, what, what Moses was coming with was greater than just, just anything that they had seen before. But here we see Pharaoh, okay? He did not um, want to believe, right? He did not want to believe. He did not listen to his magicians. As long as the magicians were telling him what he wanted to hear, he believed them. But when the magicians began to say contrary to what he wanted to believe, he did not heed them anymore. And so sometimes we kind of surround ourselves with those who tell us what we want to hear, and we are convinced that we're doing the right thing, right? Because maybe those around us are telling us that this is right. But when we begin to see that even those around me are not telling me what I want to hear, instead of going with that instead of changing my mind instead of you know going with the counsel of someone else instead i remain steadfast in what it is that i had chosen and so it is no longer that i'm listening to counsel you know sometimes people will come asking for counsel but all they really want is someone to tell them that what they have that, that what they've already chosen is correct but if you try to tell them anything opposite or different than what they have chosen you start to feel resistance you know and the question is, is why are you coming to talk to me if all you're wanting is for me to tell you what you already plan to do right and that's not what i'm here for and this is not the spirit of god working when the spirit of god convicts us he tells us to go in a direction oftentimes not what we would have already chosen because if you think about it if we're already going in the direction that god wants us to go there's no reason for him to speak you know like like we're already going in the right way 
there's no reason to have some kind of um, you know so, so some kind of event to happen. Usually, when these events happen, it's because God wants us to change direction, and that's really when we ask ourselves: Is it truly the will of God that I'm seeking, or is it my own will? Okay. Here, there was more and more evidence building up to Pharaoh that this truly was was the will of God, that this, there was truly God behind this. This was not just something like what they've seen before or something that they know or something that his own magicians could do. There was something beyond this. And yet, it says what? Pharaoh's heart grew hard, right? Because he does not want to relinquish control because he himself sees himself as a god because he does he wants to be powerful he doesn't want to acknowledge that there is someone or something else out there that is more powerful than him and so he keeps trying to delude himself right not wanting to let go of control and the lord said to moses rise early in the morning and stand before pharaoh as he comes out to the water then say to him thus says the lord let my people go that they may serve me we're going to now go into the fourth plague the flies or else if you if you will not let my people go behold i will send swarms of flies on you and your servants on your people and into your houses the houses of the egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also on the ground which they stand and in that day i will set apart the land of goshen in which my people dwell that no swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. So again, God is confirming that this isn't just a natural disaster. This isn't just a pestilence. This isn't something that's just happening on its own, but that God is going to make it very clear the distinction between the Egyptians and the Hebrews, and that again, seeing that the Hebrews are free from all of these plagues um, that are coming upon the Egyptians. And I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. If you take this from a spiritual perspective, okay, we can see that the afflictions of those living in the world, the afflictions of those who have no God to rely on to trust are, are, are different than the afflictions of the Christian. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that the Christian doesn't fall into all kinds of calamities, right? It doesn't mean that the Christian is um, uh, exempted from tragedy or exempted from pain. No, actually, the Lord confirmed that we would have tribulation in the world. It means that the way that we cope with, that we endure, that we, that we survive, and that we actually benefit and prosper through those trials is what makes us and sets us apart from the rest of the world. Because God uses those trials for our good. He uses them for good, right? God never said that, that, that we will not have the trial. He says that he will use the trial for good. And so this is what he, when, he's, when he says, I will make a difference between my people and your people. There is a difference between the way that the believer deals with suffering in the world and the way that the rest of the world deals with suffering. Um, you know, uh, I, I, was, I was talking to someone and the idea came up of, you know, a lot of people who are non-Christian, they consider that Christianity is like a crutch in the sense that weak-minded people who can't deal with the suffering they're experiencing in the world, choose to believe in an imaginary God because it makes them feel better about themselves and their life, right? And there are many people that believe that this is all religion is. All religion is, religion is simply people inventing something that doesn't exist because it makes them feel better and makes them deal with life better. And that's how religion came to be. This is what some people believe. But I look at it in the opposite way, okay? 
when did the human being determine that they needed to eat food or to drink water? Based on what? Hunger and thirst. There was a need inside the person, right, that was satisfied by eating and drinking. Of course, we know, you know, God created us with these needs. But we don't say, you know what, eating food, this is a crutch because it satisfies you. Um, you know, that's why you, that's why you go and eat because it satisfies you. You know, you don't really need to eat. No, we, we know that we need to eat, right? We, from the spiritual perspective, we have a hunger, and that hunger is for something, okay? And the fact that when we go to God, we find comfort in him, this is not because we invented him. This is because we have a need, just like the need for food. And when we go to the source of that, um, of, 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 you know, what, what satisfies that need, the need is, is satisfied, the need is fulfilled, right? So when we go to God and we find comfort in him, this isn't because it is a crutch. This is because we were made this way. We were made to be this way, right? That the human being, you know, who after a rebellion against God pretends and imagines that they cannot live or that they can live separate from him, that they, they do not need him, that they can be successful and joyful and, and, and in every way accomplished and powerful without him, right, have come to discover that we cannot. And all those who have attempted this have failed. You know, if you look at the Tower of Babel, those people who thought themselves more clever than God, that if God could send a flood on the earth, we will simply escape by climbing the tower that we have built. But then God frustrated their languages so that they could not even complete the tower because they couldn't understand one another. Every time, you know, you know the story in, in, uh, in the, the story of Herod, whom when the people said about him, this is a God, not a man, and then he fell dead on the spot, right? So, so the fact that um, we need God to cope with life and to be mentally healthy, this isn't something, uh, th this isn't a crutch. This is something that we were built for. This is the way that God intended it for us for to be. And just as someone would suffer by not eating or drinking, we also would suffer if we do not rely on God and trust in him through the midst of our trials, okay? So there is a difference between us. When the Lord said that he will be our God and we will be his people, there is a relationship. And that relationship is not just a token relationship. It is not just a formality. We need this relationship in order to live, right? We need this relationship. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt, the land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God in the land. So what do you see different here? Okay, Pharaoh is, is going for Moses and Aaron, and he's saying to them, Go sacrifice, right? Experiencing these unbearable conditions, Pharaoh, again, he goes to Moses, and he says, What? Well, go and sacrifice. I'm letting you to go, okay, um, in order to sacrifice as you have, as you have asked. And Moses said, it is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians. So what is it, what is it that, that Pharaoh told them to do? Sacrifice where? In the land. Is that what Moses was asking for? Where did Moses want? To leave. Because he told them, let us go three days outside of Egypt to worship God and sacrifice to God outside of Egypt. So here he's like making, like he's trying to make a compromise, right? He's saying, okay, you can sacrifice, but you sacrifice here. You don't go anywhere, okay? 
But Moses responds and he said, no, because if we sacrifice here, we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, they will, uh, uh, then will they not stone us? What is he referring to? What is the abomination of the Egyptians? W there's something that the Egyptians hated. Let me read this verse back in, um, in Genesis. Genesis 46. This is Joseph speaking to his family. He said what? That you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Do you remember when Joseph was speaking to Pharaoh about where the Hebrews should live in Egypt? Because Pharaoh said to, the, to Jacob and his sons and Joseph's family, come and live in Egypt, Right? And so Joseph told them, we need to live in a place separate from the Egyptians. Why? Because we are shepherds, and, and the Egyptians hate shepherds. Like the idea of, of offering sacrifice, the idea of being a shepherd, the idea of having flocks and herds and all this stuff is an abomination to the Egyptians. That's why they lived in a separate place in Egypt, the land of Goshen. Okay? So here, what Moses is saying is if we bring our sacrifices and our sheep and our cattle and our livestock and all this and offer it as a sacrifice to God, then we will make ourselves to be an abomination to the Egyptians and they will stone us. Right? So he's using this as his reasoning of why we cannot do this and offer sacrifice in the land of Egypt itself. Okay? This is what St. Ambrose says about it. He says, For the Egyptians cultivated the earth with the plow. Abraham and Jacob, however, and later Moses and David were shepherds and bestowed a certain royal discipline upon this occupation. Thus the Egyptians hated pure sacrifices. So the, the distinction between the Egyptians were more farmers cultivating the earth, whereas the people of Israel were more shepherds, um, and, and, and so this was hated by the Egyptians. So Moses is telling uh, Pharaoh, we will go three days journey, into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. Okay, so Pharaoh is reluctantly telling them, okay, you can go, but don't go too far. And in exchange for Moses to lift this curse. Then Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully any more, and not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh, uh, went out from Pharaoh, and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. So we see again. And you know, when we read this, it seems almost like comical. You know, it's like you know that, that you know that, that, that this is God who is giving you these commands. You know that if you keep doing this, he's going to send you worse and worse plagues. You know you're making things worse for yourself. Why don't you just agree and let the people go and be done with it, right? But then we turn that same questioning to ourselves. And we say, we have 
certain sins and certain addictions and certain things that we do, that every time the temptation comes upon me and I fall into the sin, I know that this is destructive. And I know that I will regret it. And I know that it shouldn't be done. And I know that it separates me from God. And I know this for sure. And yet I do it anyway. And then after I do it, then I'm sorry and regretful and mournful and, and I ask God for forgiveness, right? And then maybe it happens again that the same temptation comes and I fall into it again. So if you use logic in your mind when you look at everything that's happening here with Pharaoh, it seems like what he's doing doesn't make any sense. You know, you're, you're setting yourself up to fail, which is a very wise approach to think about it. If, if Pharaoh would have thought about it himself like this, and he said, you know what, I don't want my destruction. I don't want the destruction of Egypt um, and the way things are going. God is, is not going to stop until he lets the people go. So I'm just going to cut my losses now and say, okay, Moses, take your people and go. That would have be, been a wise choice from Pharaoh. We could all agree. And maybe when we look at the way that Pharaoh is acting, he's acting very immaturely. He's, very, uh, he's acting very foolishly, right? And yet again, when we turn the question on ourselves, we can ask ourselves the same question. Why is it? that we do what it is that we do? Why is it that we continue to sin? Why is it that we sin knowing that it has a destructive effect on us? And anyone who is in that moment of temptation, if you ask them, why are you doing it? It almost seems like a moment of insanity. You know, St. Paul, when he speaks about this, about himself in Romans chapter 7, he says about himself, the things that I want to do, I do not do, and the things that I hate, that is what I do. He says that about himself. So from, from this perspective, what is he describing? He's, he's, he's describing the, the human weakness, the battle against sin, the spiritual struggle that happens inside each person, that we are not in control. We are not in control as we imagine ourselves to be. We are so easily swayed. We are so easily manipulated, deceived. From the very first human beings, when Eve was deceived by the serpent, because the serpent told her straight up the contradictory words of God. That God told her that if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. And the serpent told her, no, you will not surely die. And in the end, why did she believe the serpent and not God? Simply because she wanted it. She wanted to believe that. Like what we said before about listening to counsel. She, she, was, she, she was presented with these two options and she chose the, the option that she really wanted, which is to eat of the fruit. And so even though we, looking back at this situation, you know, point at it and say, Eve, you're so foolish for having done this. You could have spared us all kinds of trouble in the world. But if, if I ask myself the same question, if I was in the Garden of Eden and God told me the same command, would I have eaten of the forbidden fruit? And if I am honest with myself, my answer is yes, I would have eaten of it. Because everything that we have done afterward in our lives demonstrate that we are disobeying the commandment of God constantly, all the time. Why would I imagine that in that moment in the Garden of Eden that I would have been strong enough to resist sin when I am not resisting sin every other day of my life? This is why Christianity is not about behaving well. Christianity is about being redeemed and saved by the blood of Christ because we are not able to do what is right. That is what Christianity is. The world looks at Christianity and they see that Christianity is some kind of moral system where people are called to live a certain way. Yes, we are called to live a certain way, but we do a really bad job at living that way. 
we, we, we are really bad at living according to the moral system that God has set. This is why these people, from the very first moment of the inception of the nation of Israel, were sinning against God from day one. They were stubborn. They wanted to go back. They didn't offer sacrifices the way God asked them to. Eventually, they were exiled to their enemies. Like, every, like the whole story of the nation of Israel has been a story of disobedience and God's mercy on them. It certainly was not a story of a nation that lives upright and morally and is uh, an example to the world. That is not at all what we see in the people of God in the Old Testament. The church is called to be that. The church is called through the power of God to be that pinnacle and that light of the world, just as the Lord said that we are the light of the world. But we also at the same time have to acknowledge that we fail a lot. And this is why the Lord was incarnate. This is why the Lord redeems. Because if the Lord simply told us, you must live a certain according to a certain standard, and this is it, right? Then none of us would be that. None of us would live the standard. And you see here, even in this example of Pharaoh. So the next time we look at someone from the Bible who sins, and someone like Pharaoh who his sin seems so foolish and, and immature, we ask ourselves the question, why is it that I sin even though I know its consequence? Why is it that I sin even though I know it is destructive? Why is it? Why is it that I sin? And, and, and the answer is because of our depraved heart, because of a human weakness, because because of our weakness, we are unable to commit. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. Th it is only through the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit can transform, which is why at the very first thing that happens, you know, in, in the life of a Christian immediately after they're baptized is they're chrismated and they receive the Holy Spirit because there is no possible way they could ever imagine to ever carry out the commandments of God without the Holy Spirit. It, it, is, hard, it is hard enough for us with the Holy Spirit to listen to the Holy Spirit and carry out what the Holy Spirit wants us to do, right? Uh, to say that, okay, well, we're able to do this without the Holy Spirit. No. This is why we are called by grace in the New Testament to live according to the Spirit because it is only through the Spirit that we have any hope and chance of living the, the, the life that God wants us to live. Okay. Chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh... And tell him thus, says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Now we have the fifth plague coming. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the land, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So here, um, God told Pharaoh what he should expect to happen if he doesn't obey. And he gives him a time. He says, What? Well, think about it and decide. Because a certain time is coming where there is no longer any option for you. Like you decide before this, because at this point there is a judgment. There is, a, there is the plague. It's coming. Which, you know, um, gave Pharaoh every opportunity because he definitely saw God was capable of doing this as before. 
and he knew when it would be coming. And yet even with this, Pharaoh did not listen. When it comes to the judgment, the second coming judgment, or even when it comes to the life of each person, the Lord said that it would come as a thief in the night, that there would be no time declared ahead of time. There would be no knowledge of when it would be and when it would happen, which is why the Lord calls us to live uh, according to our faith every day, because we do not know the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. We don't know the day or the hour. And so we are called to live every day faithfully, right? Here, Pharaoh knew exactly the day, and yet because he was so enslaved by his own passion that he was not able to uh, change course, even though he knew the day. And this is why sometimes people will say, typically young people, they'll say, you know what, I'm going to live how I want to live. I'm going to live and do what I want to live, how I want to live and what I want to do. And then when I get older or when a certain time comes or when whatever happens, I'm going to change. And I'm going to begin to live and make good decisions. And I'm going to do the right thing. And I'm going to start going to church. And I'm going to start praying as though that they have such control of themselves. And this is the deception of, of Satan. Is he makes us to believe that we are in control. You know, when we say, well, you know what, I can stop any time. Anytime I want, I am, I am in control. But that's, that's the thing is we are not in control, right? We, we, are, we are deceived when we think that we are in control. When we are sinning, it is because we are not in control. It's because we have been swept away into something that is bigger than us, that is stronger than us, and we are not calling upon God for his salvation, for his power to, to pluck us out of death, and instead death is like a river, and we're just flowing with it, okay? So here, even though... Uh, Pharaoh knew the exact moment that this judgment would come upon him, and yet this was not enough. So if we think, you know, like if God were to tell us in one year, you know, this would be the end of your life on earth, so live this year wisely. Some of us might respond very well to that, and we might be very serious about that. And actually, there's a story of one of the saints who the, 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 the devil... He came to him and he told him he wanted to make him feel like he still had a long time to live so that he would stop being so ascetic and so repentant and so like focusing on his repentance, on his spiritual life, on obeying God, because he had so many years left to live. So he came to him and he told him, look, you have 50 years left of your life. Just take it easy. You don't have to worry about trying so hard now. You still have a long time left in the future to repent. And he was trying to, he thought that when he says this to him, it's going to make him like less serious. But the monk, he responded and he said, only, only 50 years? I thought I had more. And so I now have to double my efforts, right? Some people, when you, they're, they're, they, they, they look at the long game, you know, they, they, they look at, they look at the, the ultimate. What is the ultimate? And I live for that ultimate. You know, I live for, 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 for the vision that is to come. I'm planning. I'm planning ahead, and I live for that. Some people, they only live for what their emotions are telling them in this minute. And maybe this minute I feel one way, and next minute I feel a different way, and whatever my emotions tell me, that is how I go. And I'm not planning, and I'm not thinking. And, you know, uh, like the people said, um, when, when God was threatening them with punishment because of their sin in the Old Testament, he said, well, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. All I care about is the moment. What can I enjoy? What is the pleasure? I am addicted to pleasure. 
I'm addicted to enjoyment. All I want is that. And I don't think about tomorrow at all, right? So even if we were to be given a date, we should not be so proud to think that simply because we know the date of when the end will be, that I'm going to be able to, with such ease, to just live rightly, right? Because it is, it, is beyond, it is beyond just my will. It really requires the Holy Spirit. It requires a reliance on God. It requires a submission to God. It requires seeking the Holy Spirit to work in me, to allow me to do what God is asking. Because what God is asking us to do is beyond human ability. It really is. Beyond human ability. We are called to do what is um, above the natural law. And so here Pharaoh, being enslaved by sin and passion as he is, of course, even though he knew that date would come, but he did not use the time wisely and he did not prepare for it and did not repent. So the Lord did this thing on the next day and all the livestock of Egypt died, but of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Okay, so the Lord here again, he spared his people, right? This is not always the case. It is not always the case that the Lord will spare the righteous. You know, there, there, there are famous stories where the Lord spares, spares the righteous. For instance, Lot. When Lot was living in Sodom and God decided to destroy the city, he sent angels to go and warn Lot to bring him out of the city before the city was burned. He saved Lot. Um, but there are other times where God allows the righteous to suffer the punishment of the wicked. For instance, Daniel, the prophet, he was one of the people that was living in Israel at the time of the exile. And as the entire nation was brought into exile because of its sin and taken to Babylon, Daniel was one of those people, him and his three friends. But they were victims. They, they, didn't, they didn't do anything to deserve that punishment. But God allowed it because he had a purpose for them in the midst of that exile. And he, ro he raised them up so that they would become an example, so that the, the people would see a reminder of what it looks like to have faith in God, to trust and to believe in God. And was a good example on Nebuchadnezzar and all of his kingdom and everyone, right? So, yes, in some cases, God plucks up those who are innocent and righteous so they don't uh, have to experience the negative consequence of other people's sin. But other times, God allows it. And even that, there is a purpose, right? There is, uh, there is a purpose regardless. If God takes us out of it or if God leaves us in it, in whatever way, there is a purpose to it. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. So he says what Pharaoh wanted to see, is it really the case, you know? Is it, is it, is it really the case that this plague is only going to affect um, our livestock only? Or only our livestock will die and the livestock of the, of the Israelites will not? So he sent someone to go tell him, right? And... No, sure enough, whatever, what God said was true. None of the Israelites' livestock had died. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace, and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh, and it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt, and it will cause boils that break out in sores on, on man and beast, 
throughout all the land of Egypt. This is now the sixth plague, which is the boils. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven, and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. You see now what happened to the magicians? At the beginning, it looked like they were able to do what God did. And then they could not do what God did. And now they couldn't even stand. Like they, they were so affected and victim to whatever was happening that they could not stand. This says something about the worldly wisdom and the worldly philosophy versus the godly one. There is a time where maybe it looks like the godly wisdom and the worldly wisdom are the same. Or that there is wisdom in the world even though it is contradicting the word of God. It appears that there is wisdom in it. And then after some time, we begin to see problems with the worldly wisdom. The worldly wisdom isn't as good as we thought that it was. There are some issues with it. And then after a while, the worldly wisdom collapses completely. And it's unsustainable. And I would say that this is where we are in our society. We are in a point now where the worldly wisdom is on the edge of completely collapsing society. Because the things that are um, exalted in the world, the things that are promoted in the world, are such that they are self-destructive. And they will destroy itself. Right? This process started long, long decades and decades ago. You know, when I'm speaking about America specifically. There's, you know, long ago, there was some semblance of Christianity and faith in the United States. And very gradually and slowly, that began to deteriorate from among the Christians themselves. This is, this is a problem of Christianity, right? Because when, when the majority of people in America were attending some kind of church, okay, what did that church offer them? You know, did that church give them what they really needed? Or did that church begin to compromise? You know, when I was working, there was um, two people that I worked with. They were both Christians, and they went to church on a regular basis. But they were living together. And I, and I thought to myself, like, is this what your church teaches and allows? Like, is this something that is good, you know? Like, there are certain things in society that have just been, even among some churches, where we just close our eyes to it, and we make excuses for it. And even though it is against the commandment of God, we just say, okay, well, we accept, accept it and tolerate it. When St. Paul was speaking to the Corinthians about the man who married his um, stepmother, right? And the church was silent. The church didn't say anything. The church didn't say this was wrong or do anything with this man. St. Paul rebuked the man and he rebuked the church. He said to the church, how are you allowing this in the church without rebuking it, without saying that this is wrong, without correcting it, Right? And it was only after this man was corrected and excommunicated for a time that he repented and came back and was accepted in the church again. So compromise with sin, whether it's at an individual level or whether it's at the level of the church, causes a deterioration of the whole community, right? Because we are called to live up to the standard of God. And when we fail, our, our response should not be, it's okay. Our response should be repentance. This is why we, are li we, we live to such a high standard, okay? Here, these magicians, these people who claim to have divine power, these people who, who were the counselors of Pharaoh, who gave Pharaoh wisdom and advice and all these things, 
completely failed. Like when they, st- they could not stand. Moses, the, the prophet of God, and Aaron were standing and declaring the truth that was coming from God, whereas, mo- whereas these magicians, right, they, they, were, they, were, not, they were not able to, to stand up against it. And there will be a day where people will look back at everything that's happened to society and realize all the decisions that were made, that were false, that were wrong, the lies that were said, the lies that were believed, in order to reach to the point of, of collapse, right? In order to, the, to reach the, the, the point where, where things are just completely failed, right? And in that day, we, as the believers, as the Christians, though a minority and though persecuted and more persecuted even then, we will still be standing and we will place, still place our trust in God because he is the creator. He is the lawmaker. He is the one who defines stability and structure and right and wrong. And we do not make up the laws according to our own desires or what is even beneficial for us, but we follow his command and his law. In Proverbs chapter 2, it says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. And this is where we are as a church. We, we, we understand the wisdom of God. We understand the truth. And that's what makes us be able to look at falsehood around us and declare it to be so. To, to recognize falsehood, you have to be standing in a place of truth. But those who believe in falsehood cannot even re- understand their own falsehood, cannot even recognize falsehood around them because it's just one big tangled web of falsehood. But those who stand on the rock of Christ, on, on the truth of Christ can look and see we have the mind of Christ as St. Paul said we can uh, we can discern mysteries we have understanding because we have the mind of Christ but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not heed them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses and we spoke before about how whenever it says the Lord hardens the heart of Pharaoh that really means Pharaoh is hardening his heart but God is not sending his grace upon him to soften his heart Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. So he's saying, like, you still haven't seen what I have. Like, you still haven't seen what I'm capable of, of, of doling out to you. It's a warning. And, and this is, you know, every one of these pestilences, it's like one step closer. It's one step closer. Just like how God warns. When God warned all the, the Israelites in the Old Testament, he gave them little warnings and then bigger warnings and bigger warnings. And they didn't heed any of the warnings, none of the warnings. And here Pharaoh also is not. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Okay, that's a strange thing to say. What, what is God saying here? <coughs> mm-hmm. This is to Pharaoh. This is not to Moses. Saying this to Pharaoh. Moses is saying it to Pharaoh. Yeah. Well, 
this is a this is a guess, but uh, I think that God is saying like He gave like He is the one who who gave Moses this power, because any 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 king or any president in the world we o- we say that you mean that Pharaoh has power he yeah Pharaoh Pharaoh yeah, yeah. He gave we we say that <coughs> God grants them the power mm. now whether they choose to do right or wrong that's free will but uh, he granted him this power as Pharaoh and uh, he's I guess gonna show him that even though he's considered the highest figure on earth he can still be put down I guess by God yes so he is saying the reason why Pharaoh is even in power the reason that he was raised up who is the one who raised up Pharaoh it's God Pharaoh don't think that you are here by chance and don't think you're here because you're such a great king I am the one who allowed you to be here and not only that why did I choose you to be here so that I can show my power in you and that my name may be declared on all the earth. You know, for someone who believes himself to be so powerful and, and to, to have obtained all these things on his own, for him to hear that the God who is speaking to him not only has the power to destroy him, but he is the, the very same God that even gave him all the power that he had. You know, like it shows, it shows really like when we say about God that he's the Pantocrator, like he is the all-powerful, the almighty. He, 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 and he plans things and he knows things from long before that even when, when Pharaoh was a child, the God was there. Before Pharaoh was born, God was there. After Pharaoh is gone, God is still there. And then God is planning and, and, and all these things from so long ago in preparation for this. So God is, again, he is revealing to Pharaoh how little Pharaoh actually is compared to God. Okay, um, there's a verse here. Hold on. This is in Romans 13. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. This is actually why when we are we as Christians are commanded to obey the government because even though we see our government as a secular government it's not a Christian government it's not like the government is not trying to obey God or to submit to God or to implement any of the laws of God but it says what let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God therefore whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So our government and any government is actually appointed by God. Just as here, Pharaoh was also raised up and appointed by God. This is why when God is referring to Nebuchadnezzar the king, remember Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king of Babylon. He was the king that invaded Israel, destroyed it, and took all of his people as captives. God refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his servant. Why? Is it because Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do what God's will? No, he, d- he didn't care what God's will. But he was doing it for his own will. And yet God, all throughout time, is involved in all of these governmental like big decisions and coups and, 
and, and all the things that the governments do, right? Working behind the scenes, and the people don't even realize that the things that they are doing is according to, to God. It doesn't mean that the government always does what is good. And that's not what this is saying, right? But he's saying even the evil that is done by the government, God allows it, and God takes into account, and he's expecting it, and he knows it. Here, clearly, God does not want Pharaoh to keep the, the, the people in captivity and slaves. He is directly working against it. And yet, even this act has a purpose. Even this that's happening now has a purpose, which is, as we said before, to show the glory of God to the Israelites, to the Egyptians, to all the nations. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause very heavy hail to rain down such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause very heavy hail. This is a repeat. This is the seventh plague. Okay. Therefore, now uh, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field. For the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field, and it is not brought home, and they shall die. Now look what God is saying here. Not only is he saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send the hail, and I'm telling you the time that I'm going to send the hail, and I'm advising you and recommending to you and telling you, bring your livestock in, right, and bring all the people in, because when the hail comes, you're going to be hurt, and they're going to die. Okay? This is, again, we said, what, this is the, uh, the eighth, uh, the seventh plague, right? The seventh plague. So there have been six other plagues at this point, and every single plague that God said would happen has happened, and every time Moses prayed for the plague to go away, it went away. There's plenty of evidence, right, that we should believe that this is actually what's going to happen, Okay? He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. So there are those among the Egyptians, now having seen all this that God has done, heeded the word of God, and he said, you know what, we believe that this is actually going to happen. Okay, we believe that it's actually going to happen, and God is actually warning us, he's telling us, protect yourselves. You know, protect, he, God is not wanting to destroy the people. Right, because he is wanting to demonstrate his power, but he is not trying to harm people. He told them actually, look, I'm telling you what's going to happen. Bring in your animals and the people. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. So there are those, right, you know, who who chose to leave to leave them outside. Okay. So question, okay, why wouldn't they regard the Lord's word? They didn't believe it. Okay? So they didn't believe it was going to happen. They had too much faith in Pharaoh. They thought that Pharaoh could stop it from happening. Okay? Pride. Like they wouldn't, they don't want Akhlaj to be wrong. Pride. Like they don't want to change their decisions and their life based on what God says. Right? Like, like, yeah, I mean, maybe they, they just didn't believe it, but there's plenty of evidence that it was going to happen. When God tells us to do something and we say, no, I don't want to do it. Why? Is it because it's the wrong decision? No, I just, I don't want to do it. People do this with their parents. You know, maybe their parents like like to give them advice a lot, 
and the kids, after a while, they don't want to hear the advice. So even when their parents to do the, tell them to do something that's right, the kids just don't want to do it. Why? Because my parents said so. Even though it's probably the right thing to do, I just don't want to do it. I don't want to do what my parents said, right? Because then that's going to make them think that they're always right and they're going to say, I told you so for all the times that you didn't do it and whatnot, right? Like, like there are those of us, and, and when we have pride, pride is saying that we do not want to submit our will to someone. Even when it comes to the most trivial thing, bring your animals in from the outside because there's every evidence that God is going to carry through what he said and there's going to be uh, hail and your animals are going to die. So, so submit to the will that acknowledge that there exists a being that is stronger than you, smarter than you, better than you. But as human beings, sometimes we don't want to accept that, that, that there exists such a being. There exists such a being greater than us. There exists just a being smarter than us, more knowledgeable than us, more powerful than us. There exists such a being. And that being tells us and warns us what we should do. And then it is up to us to decide whether I will submit to this being or not. Of course, that being is God, right? Here, some people refuse to acknowledge God, refuse to acknowledge his wisdom, refuse to acknowledge his power, refuse. It didn't matter what happened around them. What more, could you, what more could you do? Like, what more could you do to demonstrate that you're really there? What more could do God have done to demonstrate his existence, his power, that he's actually going to carry out what he said? He's done everything. And yet some people, even seeing that evidence, when it came time, they refused to budge. They refused to move. This, again, like in the story of Lazarus and the rich man when they died, and the rich man was being tormented in Hades, and he told Abraham... Uh, send back to my family, like someone to warn them, you know, warn them not to come to this place where I am. And if somebody were to rise from the dead, this would be a proof to them. When they would see someone re resurrect from the dead, this would be a proof to them that what you're saying is true so that they would not continue to live their life the way that they have been living it and come and be in torment in Hades like I am now. And Abraham responded and said, no, they have the law and the prophets. If they do not listen to them, they will not listen even if someone were to rise from the dead. And this is exactly what this is. They, they, it doesn't matter what the evidence, what the proof. People talk about proof and evidence and all that stuff because they want to rationalize why they do not believe. But that's not the real reason. Maybe in some cases. But for a lot of cases, the reason that people do not believe is not because there's no evidence. It's because they do not want to believe in the existence of such a, a being. They don't want there to be such a being. They, don't, they want to feel that they are the ultimate controller of their own lives, of their own destiny, of their own will, of their own everything. They don't want there to be someone else greater than them, telling them how they should live and what they should do. And here, everything that God was saying was for the benefit of those people. Like it was clear, the motivation of God here. The motivation is, do what I say, and I'm warning you ahead of time, so you don't be harmed. And even though the motivation was clear, and yet the people still refused to acknowledge that there was such a being, such a God. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. 
And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Like, this isn't just regular hail. This is hail and thunder and fire. Okay, so this is not like a normal thing that you would see happen. This is why when, when Moses said, what's going to happen is, is more than what has ever happened in the history of Egypt. Okay? So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Every tree, every, it's like de complete devastation. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. You see, again, the plagues are escalating, right? The damage is greater. And the proof that God is really working on behalf of the Hebrew people is greater still. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, now this is interesting. I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Okay, so what do you think of Pharaoh when he said what? I have sinned. Me and my people are wicked. Okay, he wants to place a swap, yeah? Okay, so he could be 100% manipulating, which is what he's done every other time, right? But this is the first time he says, I have sinned. And he says, my, me and my people are wicked. He never said that before. Um, so I think he actually might have believed it, but I think also he's so sh stuck to his power that, like, he's in a conflict with himself to where, like, he believes it, he sees the work of God, but he doesn't want to give up his power, so he'll keep going back and forth. So he's, he's in a conflict. So part of him is saying, you know what, I, I am sinning, like, this is, this is God, and th but a part of him is still holding on to the fact that he wants to be in control. Okay, good. Anything else? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I think he's just starting to show fear. Like before he was he was kind of going on and off. He would he would kind of get a bit worried and then be like, "No, no, no, I'm sorry." And then uh he would harden his heart. He would he keep hardening his heart. Uh I mean, here he's going to harden his heart again, but I feel like this was, because, if I, forgive me if I'm wrong, this is the first plague in which uh, multiple people have died, right? 
or I, I mean, I don't, I don't really know. People, human beings. Yes. Yeah. So this is kind of, I, I think this is him kind of just showing fear, but he still doesn't want to let go, as Lynn was saying. Yeah. Somebody else also, does this remind you of anybody else, what Pharaoh is saying and doing now? Uh, huh? I'm gonna All of? All of us. Yeah, we do this for sure. There's another character in the Bible that was very similar to this. Uh, but no, actually, every, if I may say... Who also said, I have sinned. Saul. Uh, so, uh, the Saul, story yes. of Saul, right? Saul did several things that he wasn't supposed to do as king. One of them is he offered a sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to. Um, another one is God had commanded uh, him to, um, to, like after he had won a battle, to kill the enemy king and to kill all of the sheep and everything, which he did not do. So as he is being confronted by Samuel the prophet about these things, he, he, said, he said this, he says, I have sinned, okay? But immediately after he said, I have sinned, he is still like making a request of Samuel. Samuel essentially saying to him, because you sinned against God, um, God is rejecting you from being king. And, the ol and then you begin to see that the only thing Samuel really cares about is his legitimacy in front of the people. So Samuel, being the prophet and, and, and understood and acknowledged by the people that this is the prophet of God, whomever Samuel like legitimizes as the true king, this is the one that the people will believe is the king, the king that God chose, because Samuel is the one who anointed the king, right? So, so the, the, the immediately after... Saul and Samuel have this conversation. Then Saul goes to Samuel, even after Samuel tells him, um, God has rejected you as king. He pretty much tells Samuel, yeah, but you're going to come with me, like, to, to, you know, when we go to the people, essentially legitimizing him as still being the king in front of the people. So you begin to get a sense that the thing that Sa Sa Saul was, was concerned about was not really whether he had sinned or not, but what was the negative consequence that was happening to him personally? You know, I just, I don't want to experience the negative consequence, so I say I sinned. And so in some sense, either Saul or Pharaoh here doesn't even understand what I sinned means. Like when, when, I, when I say to God, I have sinned, what I'm saying is I acknowledge my weakness, I acknowledge my transgression of the commandment of God, and I acknowledge that I deserve punishment for it, but I am imploring the mercy of God. But what Saul was doing is he essentially just wanted to get out of the negative consequence of his sin. And so here also Pharaoh is like all he wants is there be no negative consequence of this. Yes, he is beginning to see that, that this is really God that is doing this. But even, even still, he is not like submitting to this God. And he is saying this because, you know, he, he's not being sincere. He's trying to get what he wants out of it maybe to a higher extent than before, but he's still not submissive. He's just saying this. Yeah. Could it be that he's sincere, but then he's too weak to actually do anything about it? Like sometimes we can acknowledge that we're sinning, but it's that will and that actually doing something about it that's harder. I mean, of course, it's it's possible that, like, in this moment, um, he really, um, you know, started to repent, but then very quickly he went back again. I mean, this is possible. But you see in his actions, 
um, immediately after this that he all he still is caring about is keeping the people. Like, he, in, in, in the one sense, like he, it's like he's wanting to appease this God, but in the other sense, he's not wanting to give up what the God is asking him for. We do this when we are like, we want to worship God, but we want to worship him on our own terms. Like, we want to worship God, but we don't want to give up the thing God is asking us to give up. Right? So we, we invent and create a means by which we worship God that is kind of according to our own understanding. Right? Which is when, for instance, like, um, people in the Old Testament, they offered what God called the profane fire. Right? The profane fire was like this um, illegitimate fire that they were offering to God, uh, and, and God rejected it. Or when the people would um, offer things to God that God did not ask for, or offer it in the wrong way, in ways that God did not ask for, or do things that God said shouldn't be done, but out of for a good reason. So for instance, Saul, for instance, when Samuel asked him, why did you keep the sheep alive? Why didn't you kill the sheep? What was Saul's answer? So we could offer it as a sacrifice to God. Well, God didn't ask you to do that. God told you to kill the sheep. So don't invent a means by which you are going to worship God apart from what he has said. So definitely, um, you know, Pharaoh still doesn't want to let the people go. But at the same time, he's trying to see how I can appease this God who is asking me to let them go. Yeah. Could this also be similar to how Saul wanted to appear in front of the people? So Pharaoh didn't want to lose the support of the Egyptians because obviously the Egyptians are affected and they see what's going on and they're like, how do we trust Pharaoh if this God is more mighty so is it possible that he's just saying we have sinned or i have sinned to be on the side of the people of the egyptians well i mean if i mean if pharaoh wanted the people to respect him as the king then by him showing humility in front of god then the people w would actually see pharaoh as being less powerful because he is now submitting to a higher power but you could say that um for the sake of the destruction of the people, that there probably were a lot of people in Egypt who were angry with Pharaoh and just wanting him to let the people go. So the fact that he would be like appeasing those people who were on the side of just letting them go so that Egypt is not destroyed. So maybe, yeah, maybe that. Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured out on the earth. And th when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. Again. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. Now we go into the eighth plague. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So again, God is reiterating to Moses the reason why and how, and how God is going to use all of these events 
is for his own glory, not just for this generation, but for future generations. And like I said before, this event is remembered for hundreds of years. It, it, this, is, this is remembered all throughout history, both among the Israelites and among the other people. This is to always remind them the power of God and that God has chosen. This is how much God loves them. He's doing all of this to bring them out to be his own people. You know, like he cares so much about their enslavement that he's going to bring them out. And again, from, from a spiritual perspective, we say, how much does God want us to repent? How much does God want us to be free from sin? Look at what he does to be free from sin, right? He's, he, he's, he's willing to do all these things to free us from the grasp and the bondage of sin. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one is able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail, and they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? So you see, like what you were saying is people are starting to question, you know, Pharaoh. Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, We will go with our young, our old, our sons, our daughters, our flocks, our herds. We will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. So Moses is saying we're going to take everything. We're going to take our possessions. We're going to take all of our families. Everything is going to go. Then he said to them, The Lord had better be with you. When I let you and your little ones go, beware for evil is ahead of you. What is, what is he saying? Yeah. Not by other people. Yeah, he's saying, don't you dare take everything and everyone. You know, the Lord had better be with you. Like the Lord protect you from me if I'm going to allow all of you to go. Okay, why? Not so. Go now, you who are men. And serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from the presence of Pharaoh, from pres Pharaoh's presence. So Pharaoh, again, he has this struggle. He doesn't want to let them go. That's the bottom line is he doesn't want to let them go. And he's trying to do anything he can to squirm his way out of this destruction uh, of Egypt without actually letting go of the thing that he has to let go of. You know, you can think of it like someone who's like holding on to a really hot pan with their hand and it's burning their hand. And it keeps getting hotter and hotter and harder, and it's burning more and more and more. And for whatever reason, this person doesn't want to let go of this pan. So he starts to put, like, balm and cream and stuff on his hand to try to, like, make it more comfortable, but he's not willing to let go of it. In the end, if, he do if Pharaoh doesn't let go of these people, he's going to burn himself, and he's going to destroy himself. And he's just trying to find any way to negotiate. So some things we cannot negotiate with God. Right, like you cannot negotiate. Like you're either gonna do what he says or anything else is disobedience. Right? It's either it's all or it's nothing. Right? Like when Moses was in the desert 
with the people and God told him to speak to the rock so that water would come out and instead he hit the rock with his stick because he was angry, right? God punished him for that. God told him you will not enter the promised land f just be because you did that because of course Moses should have known better, right? So it's either disobedience or obedience. So here, again, Pharaoh is trying to say, um, no, just the men. Because if it's just the men, then we know you have to come back. Because you're not going to leave the women and the children and everything else here. So this was a guarantee. He thought he was going to be clever. And he's going to find a way for him to appease God while at the same time getting what he wants. Okay? Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on all the land that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. Okay, um, This again shows like the power of, of God on the land. This is a good place to stop um, today, and God willing, we can continue next time. Okay? And glory be to God forever. Amen. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, and for all the lessons that you teach us, O Lord, from your, from your Holy Scripture. Teach us, O God, how not to be like Pharaoh and to harden our heart against you and your commandments. Teach us, O Lord, to submit our will to you and to know, O Lord, that whatever you ask us to do is the best for our lives. Teach us not to hold on to sin or to seek after comfort in sin, but to know, O Lord, that it brings nothing but destruction and pain and torment upon us. We ask you, O Lord, to free us from the bondage of sin as you are freeing, O Lord, your people from the bondage of Pharaoh. We ask, O oh God, that you help us to see how much you care for us and love us and how much you work, O oh Lord, to free us from his hand. Teach us your ways, O oh Lord, and let us, O oh Lord, to rejoice in the presence of your Holy Spirit and us, teaching us, O oh Lord, how to overcome temptation and sin and to lead us, O oh Lord, to the promised land. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you.